Welcome to Changeable. This is episode number 109, Memory. You're tuned in to Changeable with Dr. Amy Johnson. Changeable podcast is all about breaking habits, ending anxiety, and the ironic way change really works. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey there, welcome back to Changeable. I've been thinking about doing an episode about memory for a long time. Um, and so this is it. So I want to talk about a, just a, a range of things around memory. There's some research that I had to study when I was in graduate school around memory that I think is super relevant to what we talk about here on the podcast. Um, there's some more recent stuff around trauma and memory. There's how memory kind of plays into habits and ongoing issues like anxiety, like stuff that we say we have. Uh, it kind of requires memory to say that you have a habit, to say that you have anxiety. It's based in these ideas about what has come before and how often it's come and our our memory of it. Uh, so there's a lot of relevance there. And, you know, memory, memory is thought. And from what I can see, the only reason that we call it memory and not thought is that the content of it is talking about something that already happened. So some event happened, something happened, and our mind right now in this very moment, our mind is just talking about it. But you know, so much of what we look at here in this new paradigm is like the content of our thinking is all over the place. It's up for grabs. I mean, it's it's who the heck knows what. It's always changing. It's not like our content is the truth. There's no real stability to it. It's super biased. It's super contaminated by whatever's moving through us in that moment, you know, so many different factors. So the content of our thinking is fine. The the what of our thinking is fine. It just is what it is. But that we're thinking, that this experience right now in this moment, and that's always the case, this experience right now in any moment is created by this thing called thought. That's what's really interesting. And that's what never changes. It's a constant. It's always the same, even while the storyline is always moving around. So really, it's kind of funny. I mean, we talk about memories and which is just a specific thought about a specific thing, right? Memories or our memory, how much we can remember things overall and in general. And I don't know. I mean, really what we're talking about is just thought. It's just that the content of that thought is about the past or something. So in that way, again, you know, like it's all of this research about memory, all of these these cool little facts and ways to think about and consider memory extend to all of our experience because memory is just another thought. So I've been thinking recently about... Um, a whole class of research by Elizabeth Loftus, who's a cognitive psychologist, um, very, very well known. She's been very celebrated for all of this research, which started, I think, like kind of in the late 70s, but 80s and 90s were kind of her heyday of um, a ton of research on memory. And basically, 
finding that memory is reconstructive. So, and this probably isn't surprising to anyone listening to this, but memory she found is not like, um, it's not like we go into a, a storage bin in our heads and pluck out a memory from, you know, January 1st, 1981. Here's what happened. We don't go find it in this file cabinet or storage bin in our brain and retrieve it as an already formed, stored thing, which was one theory. Like this, I think they call it like the storage bin theory or something. Um, It's one theory. That was one theory in cognitive psychology. Like maybe it works that way. But what she found is no, it's not stored and retrieved in an already there sort of state. It's reconstructed in the moment in real time. And, you know, given everything that we talk about here within this paradigm about how thought works and how it's fresh in the moment and it's always changing and it's always moving through us and that the only thing we ever experience or feel is what's here right now in this moment coming to life. Even when it's talking about January 1st, 1981, whatever date I just said, See, I can't remember. <laughs> Even if it's talking about some event right back then, it, it doesn't matter. The about is not the point. It's a fresh thought right now in this very moment. And the fact that memory is reconstructive, meaning it's, it's created in real time on the spot right now, I think that's so important. Again, it makes sense. It's kind of obvious maybe to us, but it's so important to see because it shows us that there really is, it shows us like the fluidity in everything. It shows us how and why, and we all have this experience, why things change and can change for us so much based on on our mood, based on our state of mind, based on just something new showing up in a moment, based on our level of consciousness, how from one level of consciousness, everything looks horrible, even our memories of what happened in 1981. And from another state of consciousness, those exact same things that we're thinking about, the content, the, that event or that date can look and feel completely different and have a completely different meaning to it like that our mind assigns, right? Our mind gives everything the meaning that it has. And that can be so completely night and day different based on who the heck knows what, a bunch of arbitrary factors, you know, like what kind of mood we're in or where our consciousness happens to be in that moment. And all of this taken together is like, wow, our experience, our memories, our thoughts in the moment, same thing, completely up for grabs. We live in this amazing flow of storyline and emotion and all of this stuff, you know, this amazing game that we're in that's so real and realistic. And it's truly being created and recreated on the spot in real time. And then it goes away. And then when the next bit of experience flows through us, who knows? Who knows what it is? It's not like this snapshot of life, you know? So so a more outside-in 
you know, I, I hadn't thought about it this way until I just said this, but like a more outside in kind of perspective where the outside world impacts what we feel would completely support a, a storage bin kind of model of memory where, you know, when your dad left when you were five years old, you have a snapshot memory of that moment in your mind because that event, the outside world created it a certain way for you. So if the outside world created it a certain way for you, it doesn't doesn't make sense that it would change and shift over the years, right? The outside created it. The, what happened in 1981 isn't, isn't rehappening. So it would make sense in an outside-in world that we have that kind of snapshot or storage bin sort of sort of memory. But we know from tons and tons of research that we absolutely do not. And to think about life moving through us from the inside out, it makes perfect sense what we're saying, this more reconstructive way that memory works. So some of the research on this is just kind of, there's a tons and tons of studies all have been replicated a gazillion times. Um, but a lot of it kind of fed into eyewitness testimony and how uh, unreliable, unfortunately, it is. A lot of it, there was a lot of controversy around this, um, I think in the late 80s and 90s, um, around repressed memories. And and again, that kind of feeds into the to the police legal sort of side of things because uh, they could, they found that, you know, if you go to someone and say, um, hey, what do you remember? Like, let's imagine that you saw someone being mugged on the street. You saw someone grabbing an old lady's purse and running away with it on the street. And, and you were a witness to this. So they bring you into the police station and they say, okay, tell us what you saw. And you tell them what you saw. Oh, I saw the guy grab the lady's purse and he ran off in that direction. Now they could bring people in later and say, um, you know, did you see the guy in the green t-shirt grab the lady's hat? And they said, yep, I saw that guy. He definitely had a green t-shirt on. He grabbed the lady's purse and he ran in that direction. Well, they could bring in other other people saw the exact same scene and they might say, you know, did you see the guy in the orange t-shirt? And yep, sure enough, they saw the, saw the guy in the orange t-shirt. So all of that is kind of showing how these little suggestions, that's just one example of something that biases our memory, but these little suggestions of what color shirt the guy was wearing, when our memory is being reconstructed on the spot in real time, it takes all of that into account and is super confident about it. So the confidence level of these eyewitnesses was through the roof. Absolutely, I'm positive he had a green t-shirt on or an orange t-shirt on. But of course, because they manipulated the whole thing in a lab, they know that that wasn't necessarily the case. So I think what happened with a lot of this is that... um people would have things that come up over time as happens, you know, in, in trauma kind of situations or abuse situations, people would, would suddenly remember something or have flashbacks of something. Um, and police and detectives and lawyers and other people would say, oh, you know, like they'd kind of give more information than they probably should have. And it would end up tainting kind of the memory, or at least it at least it had the potential to. So I'm not saying it actually did, but it, based on this research and the findings, it had the potential to. And anyway, that's a whole other story because obviously people who uh, who had gone through abuse 
now this research is pointing to the fact that maybe their their memories aren't so valid and it it was uh, kind of a big thing for a while there. But um but the research itself just kind of showing how biased our memory is by things like a suggestion from someone else or um, like I said, our mood or just the words that are used. So they would bring people into a, a lab and say, you know, what did you tell us what you witnessed when the green car smashed into the white car? And then they'd bring other people in and say, tell us what you witnessed when the green car bumped into the white car. And those who heard the word smashed estimated that the cars were going at like 40 miles an hour. Those who heard the word bumped estimated that the cars were probably going at like 20 miles an hour, right? So even just words like that, little cues can completely influence and bias what our mind spits out, which which just is the most sensical thing in the world. Of course they can, but we don't realize it. That's the important part is we don't realize that's happening because for the most part, we kind of just believe our thinking. You know, we think we're right. And and actually when those words were used, like the the memory of the eyewitness, like they can see that picture clear as day in their head and no, I'm positive. You know, they were going really fast or he had the green shirt on but it's all reconstructed in real time, biased by all of those things that we're completely unaware are biasing us. So I think this is so relevant to everything. It's so relevant to what we talk about in terms of just our experience. Because again, the more, the more we see, wow, we live in this sea of stuff and it's amazing and it's fun and we can interact in it and we can be players, full out players in this game of life. But we can also know that it's a game. We can also know that there's a ton of bias baked in. It just allows us to play more with less seriousness. It allows us to bounce back. It'll, it helps us to not cling to things and dig our heels in and and fight for our thoughts and our limitations and our emotions and all of that in the way that we sometimes do. And when we aren't doing all that, we're so much more childlike. You know, our experience is lighter and easier and we feel our resilience more because we're not grabbing onto all this form and and believing it as truth, as valid, accurate truth. We have that healthy bit of suspicion that helps us kind of be more in the flow of things. So the whole reconstructive memory thing, um, love it. It's so interesting. And it's something, again, I've been wanting to talk about for, for a while. You know, I think for me around memory too, um, I rem- remember this being being one of my first kind of big uh, ahas around this whole understanding way back when, like hearing Sid Banks talk about the fact that that memory is just thought right now in this moment, you know, that it isn't coming from the past. It isn't stored. It's here right now, even though the storyline of it usually, because it's something that happened to us or involves people in our lives, it has that whole identity 
piece, if it's a memory, tends to be really kind of baked into it. So it gets our attention. It feels even more real than some other random passing thought because it's a memory about our lives. You know, it definitely has that feel to it. But to see that it's here now and that it operates by all the same laws that thought operates by, so huge. And especially when it comes to things like flashbacks, like PTSD related stuff, like rumination, you know, which are, again, they're, they're thought in a moment, but they seem like exceptions. They very easily start to look like exceptions. They start to look like, no, but this trauma did happen and it keeps coming back. And yes, absolutely, the trauma did happen and thoughts keep showing up. But in any given moment, we aren't feeling the trauma. We're feeling a brand new, brand new, even if the content is super old, we're, we're experiencing a brand new thought in a brand new moment always. And there's just something in that that's so freeing, you know, that this river of life is creating brand new thought all the time moving through us, even when the storyline or the what or the content of that thought is the same that came through a minute ago. See if you can kind of feel the difference in that. Same with rumination, same with intrusive thoughts or repetitive thoughts that that people get really, really caught up in. It's the difference between feeling like, whoa, my mind just goes on repeat or I'm haunted by this thing that keeps coming back. That's the way it looks and feels, no question. But when we see it's brand new, fresh thought in each and every moment, even when the content's the same, we're not hanging on the content. We're looking more toward the process. In each and every moment, you think things new and fresh. And just that little bit of shift more toward the that, toward the process of it, and away from the storyline of it helps us feel more free. You know, it's not that this thing keeps coming back and haunting you and and you'll never shake it. It's that, oh, thought keeps flowing through me in fresh and updated ways all the time. And yeah, there's a storyline that tends to show up a lot in mine. I don't know if you can feel the difference in that. To me, it's subtle, but it's everything. It's everything because again, it's just where, what we're hanging our hat on. Are we hanging our hat on, on the always changing, moving what of our thinking? Or are we hanging our hat on the fact that thought moves through all humans all the time and it's always updating and in flux? So I recently heard um, the guy who wrote The Body Keeps a Score um, Vanderkolk, I think is his name, Basil Vanderkolk, um, on a on a podcast that I thought was so interesting, talking about how memory works a little differently for people who have had trauma, like major trauma in the past, um, or, or around those topics. It's not for those people overall, but it's around those issues. So um, basically what he was saying is that 
yes, memory is reconstructive. And our memory, the reconstructive nature of our memory works uh, works in our favor in amazing ways. It's very adaptive. And we've all noticed, I think, how over time our memories tend to become, this is just in general, Now I'm not talking about memory, memories of trauma or things like that, but just in general, over time, our memories of certain things tend to become a little uh, looser and lighter and less serious and more positive. So for example, the like good old days phenomenon, you know, where when you're, let's say it's like when you're uh, just starting off your life, you're in your mid twenties and you're working in your first job and trying to buy your first house or whatever, you know, early in your relationship or with little kids or whatever your situation is. Like in that often in the moment of that, you know, a lot of our thinking can can be around how things are really tough and I can't wait until later. (laughs) I can't wait till later when things get easier, when I get more settled or when this happens or that happens. It just tends to be the nature of of a lot of our thinking. Now, when you look back on when people who are in their 70s, let's say, look back on those times in their 20s, it's amazing how uh, a lot of the struggle is forgotten or maybe not forgotten, but sort of almost glamorized, almost like, oh gosh, yeah, it was, those were tough days. Like we were really working hard trying to figure things out, but man, we were happy and we were just figuring it out as we went. And it was all, you know, those were the good old days when just starting off and, you know, we, we have, our mind has this way of looking back on the past. I think because the further away it gets, the more the, when our mind in real time reconstructs things, it just, it's just out there. It can't hurt us anymore. It, we don't need such a negativity. Our mind doesn't need to give it such a negativity bias because it's done and over with. We lived through it. We proved it. So, so it's almost like it gets this halo effect, like the opposite of a negativity bias where, you know, all of that was just the good old days, which is pretty awesome if you think about it. Um, I think the same happens with people who have passed away. So often I have many friends who talk about this with your parents or grandparents or whatever who passed away where when the person was here, you know, we were human. (laughs) They had their ups and their downs and you didn't always like them and you didn't always get along and it just was what it was. It was just the relationship was what it was. But after they die, it's like, it doesn't take long before all of your memories are just positive and wonderful. And in some cases, as people become almost saint-like, you know, and how, how people think about them and reflect back on them, which is kind of awesome. <laughs> I don't know. Like if, if none of our thinking is like the truth anyway, hey, if it starts to, to go off in that direction, I'll take it as opposed to all the negativity bias that we have in, in most of the rest of our thinking. So it's kind of cool that things happen like that. So what this Vanderkolk guy found is that that is, that is a thing. That's a phenomenon that happens that we tend to have these good old day effects and all of that. Um, but when there's been a, a major trauma, that doesn't happen there. So in the or it happens far less there. 
So in those cases, when you've had some big major traumatic thing, our memory, it's still reconstructive because that's just the way life and our mind works, but it tends to look a little bit more like that storage bin theory where this thing that happened does have this sense of being almost kind of kind of branded into our memory and and there's less reconstructiveness around it. There's less updating. There's less bias for good or bad. It just kind of gets, I don't want to say stuck there because I don't know that it's stuck, but but it gets kind of cemented in place in our mind in the way that it initially got popped into our mind. And and it doesn't waver so much. And I don't know. I think that's really interesting and 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 really um, hopeful for people who are in that situation to see, because it's still it's still not. I don't. It's still not the truth. So always, any thought, any thought that shows up in our head is thought. It cannot show up in our experience without some degree of personal bias. Now, again, I'm not at all saying the thing didn't happen or anything like that, but we see things the way we see them. We remember them the way we remember them, and we experience them in real time the way we experience them. So so even though in these traumatic episodes, not a lot has changed. We keep going back to the same image or the same picture, and it doesn't tend to waver much. I think what that can do is lead us to think, no, this is an exception. Again, like this is real and that thing, it can make it look so much more outside in. Like that thing really did this to me. Obviously, like I've seen it the same way for all these years, but it's still just how our mind works. Like there's an explanation for that. Our mind is always trying to help us. And when something that jarring and dangerous happens, mind jumps into overdrive to try to protect us. And it will just pounce on that and hold it in place because it looks like such a threat. And our mind needs to figure out a way to work that out. So to see kind of the the reasoning behind it and that it's still just a trick of the mind in a sense. I don't know. I feel like it, I feel like these explanations just help almost no matter, like it's just interesting to talk about this stuff and helpful to talk about it because it starts to give us a little bit of a deeper understanding, not that we fully understand it, but it's like, oh, there's some rhyme and reason here. You know, there's some, there's some adaptive function behind my experience, no matter what it is, even when it's the same flashback over and over again that doesn't seem to change over time. It doesn't feel in quite the same way like our mind is against us or we're fighting against some demon or something that's haunting us. It's more like, oh yeah, that's what my mind does and that's how it works to try to protect me. So the last thing I wanted to mention around memory is um, is this way in which our, like even just the word habit, habit, I don't know what the definition is, but it's something that happens over and over, right? It takes memory to even see that. It takes us looking back. It takes a mind looking back saying, yep, this is how it goes. It always shows up this way. 
and it also implies that it's going to into the future, you know, like there's a whole memory aspect of that. Even like, like I mentioned earlier, when people say, oh, I have anxiety, that is, that requires a whole lot of memory, a whole lot of looking back at the past. Now, I know as human beings, of course, we use these words, they make perfect sense, nothing to argue with there. We always will use these words because they, they have a function. But as human beings who are looking in this other direction as well, we get to be fully human, but we also get to see, huh, but what about the bigger formless kind of side of things? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? That, that it takes a mind, a machine, looking back and taking stock of things and keeping score in order for us in a moment in real time to, to have the experience of having a habit or to have the experience of having chronic anxiety or chronic anything. Chronic requires memory and past. <laughs> I, I just think this is so cool because there's something, there's something in that. If chronic and habits require memory and past, yes, we're humans who are always going to have a memory and a past and a mind, but we're also much bigger than that. And, and in that much biggerness of that, beyond the machinery narrating life for us, beyond this linear narrated life that we live, how can we possibly have a habit or have anything? We can't. Nothing is chronic. Chronic is not a word that makes any sense in that formless space. And for me, what that points to is, again, the more it feels like we're in this I'm stuck in this. It's hopeless. I've had it for this long. When we're beating the drum of all of that, which we do, under, totally understandably, that's all showing us, wow, I'm very much in my head right now. My mind has this. It's giving me the representation of how it looks. It's spitting out this sad, hopeless story about it very much in my head. And while my head may be doing that, there's a whole bigger amazing space and truth beyond all of that. And we can look there. You know, it doesn't mean our habit goes away. It doesn't mean everything instantly shifts. But there's another place to look where habit and chronic and have this and have that doesn't exist. It doesn't even make any sense. It's like we just experience consciousness taking form moment by moment by moment and then it goes away and it washes away completely. It doesn't, it doesn't leave a mark. It's not like, you know, it's like writing your name in the sand and the wave completely washes it away. That's what's there in that more formless. Stuff arises, it falls. It rises, it falls. It rises, it falls. Now, that exact same experience of mind will take that and say, yeah, because you have a habit. <laughs> Isn't that amazing though? Think about that. A mind will narrate that as, yeah, because you have this consistent problem. By definition, that throws a bunch of crap into your future. It, it brings a totally different feeling in the present. But that exact same thing taking place it rises, it falls, it rises and falls without the label, without the mental narration of it. It's just 
life taking form, taking shape, and then washing away. And seeing it, you know, we're going to see it in both ways, but acknowledging that way, you know, seeing that that, like I talked about in the the future uh, episode, a couple episodes ago, letting our scales tip to where we can look a little bit more toward the formless and let be less bought into the form is everything. It changes so much. And that's what this whole conversation about memory has been about. Just helping us to cling to and trust and honor and respect the form just a tiny bit less. And not that we dishonor it or disrespect it. We just don't trust it so much. You just see it for what it is. And it's it's amazing how it begins to tip those scales a little bit. We get to play more and actually appreciate the form more because it isn't so solid and stable and serious. It isn't this thing we have. And it's it's not the full story. There are two things coming up that I want to tell you about. First, on Tuesday, August 25th, I'm hosting a free webinar called How to Have Peace of Mind in Times of Uncertainty and Change. I'll talk about how isolation, change, and uncertainty are not painful states in and of themselves, although we sure struggle with them at times. I'll talk about health and financial anxiety and how habits and unhealthy coping mechanisms, which kind of gone into a backslide for a lot of people in the past few months, how they're really signs of our resilience. So we will look at those habits that have come back and talk about that a lot in this webinar. Everyone who registers for the webinar will get the recording and there will be time for questions. So you can see more and register for the free webinar at dramyjohnson.com slash COVID. Also on Thursday, August 27th at 3 p.m. Eastern time, I'm having a Q&A session on my Facebook page about the Little School of Big Change. So I will share in that q and I'll answer all your questions and I'll talk a little bit about how right now with what we're going through in the world, this is the perfect time to see that you're always changing. You always have been changing to look toward the resilience and the human design that is created for this. We are designed for what we're going through right now in the world. I'll talk about that a little. Mostly I'll answer all your questions about the Little School of Big Change and how it can help you, particularly right now. So join me on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Dr. Amy Johnson. Both of these links are in the show notes and I hope to see you there.